gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the Stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, and your host, Jeff Maldron. Hey everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers hosting another Studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. And again, sending our best wishes to Jeff Baldron, who we hope is back hosting this Studcast very soon. You have found the only podcast on the planet which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Now, please welcome the originator of the Studcast and the man who changed the podcasting world with the Super Studcast. We step back into the ring and back into time with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. What is up, Ron? Well, nice to be with you today, my man. It's a beautiful day where I am. I hope it is where you are and just enjoying being home <laughs> like, like everybody else out there in the world this, this time frame. So uh, it's a little bit different, but uh, I guess, uh, you know, uh, we're going to, we're working our way out of it, seems like. So... I'm ready to go, ready to roll today, my man. Uh, got a good one for you today, I think. And for everybody out there listening, and we're going to cover a lot of ground. And and if uh, for those people that are into the booking part of this, they're, they're, they're probably going to have a good day today. This is There's quite a bit of that in this one today. That's awesome. All right, let's get strapped in. We're ready to roll. So where are we going today? Well, last week, obviously, we had that... Uh, Tribute to Dick Steinborn, who had just passed away. And this week, we're going to return to the last two Southeastern Knoxville cards of April in 1976, April 23rd and the 30th of April. Uh, we're going to be talking also about changing in the crew, changing the, quite a few guys in the crew, who's coming and who's going. And that happens a lot in wrestling. Uh, and as I said last week at the end of the Studcast, for those who love to be bookers, think they'd make a great booker. Today, we're going to put on those booker hats, and we're going to look into Southeastern Wrestling's future, put the pieces of the puzzle together, so to speak, uh, as bookers do, and figure out how to maintain growth while not losing significant stars. Pretty big deal to, to accomplish that. Our learning tree question today is a very appropriate one, considering what our country and the world is experiencing today. The gentleman asked uh, in this one, what effects would this COVID-19 virus have had on the territories and wrestlers if it had happened in the 1970s and 80s? Would any of them have been able to make a comeback and survive? Mm. Great question. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, something that, uh, you know, none of us ever thought we'd ever see probably. But uh, that's a good question. So uh, I'm just going to jump right into it, Dave. You know, we've 
we spent almost uh, almost all of last week discussing the, the great Dick Steinborn. Uh, and we have actually had a couple of stories about him that I was able to throw in there as well. And today we're going to start with those Knoxville cards. of Going back to where we were before the Steinborn tribute. And we're going to cover the Friday, April 23rd, 1976 card in Knoxville. And the following Friday night, April 30th, 1976. So Friday, April 23rd, 76, we're back in Chihuahua Park. We've got a nice night, and we're going to be in that beautiful amphitheater. Uh, the up-and-coming young star, Mike Stallings, was in the first match that night against Tony Peters, and he got a victory over the big man. Uh, Ron Wright and Butch Malone, they have face-to-face with Tor Tanaka and Norvell Austin, and uh, Homer's out there managing his two men. And this is the first time these guys have met in an actual tag match. They've wrestled in all types of different single combinations, but this is their first tag against each other. Uh, Homer got involved at the end of this match. I'm going to go ahead and give you the results of these matches, too, because we're going to talk about two Friday nights. So Homer got involved at the end of the match and caused Malone to lose the match, uh, the very first tag match between the four of them. The next match is the Southeastern Championship. Don Carson, the champion against me. And uh, he had regained the title from me the week before. And that was our second championship match against one another. This was only the third time we had met for the title. And again, for the third time, this belt is going to change hands because I'm going to become the Southeastern champion. Every one of these three title matches has been in, we've swapped this championship. Uh, In this one, Rob comes down to ringside. Because Carson uh, uses his old peanut butter glove on me, and, and he cut me pretty good on this one. I uh, had to have some stitches on this, as a matter of fact. And, and uh, you know, I was bleeding pretty bad, and the crowd was about as worried as Rob was, I think. Uh, the referee got over top of me at one point, and uh, he was doing what they do in boxing. He was taking a good close look at whether I'm going to just ring the bell and stop this, because uh, it was pretty bad. At that point, uh, you know how Carson was. He kind of waited on the referee to get over top of me. And then he got uh, behind the referee and he loaded his glove up. He's going to end it, I guess. And uh, Rob had been watching from up top in the old uh, amphitheater there. And he had come down to the ring and he picked him up a little uh, a little something to, to smack uh, Carson with. And that's exactly what he did. He slid into the ring while the referee's looking down at me. And Carson's loading his glove, and he spun Carson around, and he nailed him. And old Don, he put it. He put Don's lights out. Don was down for the count, and uh, Rob jumped out of the ring and left. The referee turned around. All he saw was Carson laying there. So I crawled over and covered him and got the three count and regained the title. For the first time, uh, it, you know, two weeks ago I'd had it. I lost it. I won it back. So the last match of the card on April 23rd is the sixth straight week that the superstars and Robert and Jimmy Golan uh, have battled for the Southeastern Tag Championship. Robert and Jimmy had won the first ever Southeastern Championship tournament on February 29th of 76. The superstars won the title the first time the next week, the week after they had lost the finals to Rob and Jimmy. They successfully defended it three straight times before Rob and Jimmy finally regained the belts. This match on April 23rd had a very unusual stipulation to it. It's a mask versus belts. So Rob and Jimmy are the champions. If they lose, they're going to lose the belts. But if the superstars lose, they got to both unmask. So, uh, you know, most people had seen this type of uh, 
stipulation would say, well, you know, Rob and Jimmy are going to lose. You know, the mask guys aren't going to lose. But, boy, I think that crowd was shocked when they saw the result of this one. Rob and Jimmy beat them right in the middle. And uh, they they were supposed to take their mask off. But uh, those two guys, uh, and you're familiar with them. They're from your part of the country there, Dave. Dick Dunn and Tarzan Baxter. They didn't much want to take their mask off after they had lost. So uh, Rob and Jimmy got into it with them, tried to pull their mask off, and they weren't getting too far along and getting it done. And then the old boy that they had busted his eye about two months earlier, Ron Wright, they bust him a hard way on the desk at television. He decided, by gosh, we're going to see who they are. And he went down and joined Rob and Jimmy. And they, between the three of them, took both of those guys' masks off of them. And uh, they left the ring without masks. And the announcer got on the microphone, and he announced their names, Dick Dunn and Leon Baxter. And uh, the rest of it was history. You know, fans went home happy. You know, they didn't really know much about uh, who Dick Dunn and Leon Baxter were because they weren't from that part of the country. So the fans went home happy, and they never expected to see the superstars again. But it wasn't over yet. Oh, it's it's we're going to revisit this whole thing again. So um, that uh, it was a good event. That's pretty awesome. What kind of crowd for a night like that? It had to be huge. And then what kind of figures for that week? Well, there was a big crowd. It was almost 5,000 in Chilpahoe Park Amphitheater, about 4,800. And we ran 500 other cities during that week. Two of them were in the state of Kentucky, one in the state of Virginia and two in Tennessee. That didn't include Knoxville. So there was another 9,000 out of those five towns. So it was 14,000 fans for the week, about a $42,000 gross and a payoff of about 12,000. Uh, crew was about uh, 14 guys uh, and most of those on most of those cards. Uh, the average was about $800 a man. That's about $3,000 in today's money. Not too yeah. bad a week for for boys back in those time in that time frame. And uh, so uh, since we talked about the 23rd card, let's just go ahead and catch up on the 30th, the following Friday night. Let's talk about that card on April 30th of 76. And then we'll talk about the TV that promoted the, set, the April 30th card. Opening match was the first real test for the improving Mike Stallings, who was really becoming a great wrestler at this point. He, and he was matched. He might've been overmatched by a, with an old-time veteran called Art Nelson, who is a famous wrestler and uh, and very respected in the wrestling profession. They had a tremendous match. Uh, Stalings is good. Art really led him perfectly through the match, and they had a great matches. Uh, matches with uh, guys like Art Nelson and Stalings going over and winning them was great for Stalings. He's a young kid, and so we recorded it. I, I expected it would be a great match. You never record the first match on a card usually, but I wanted to record this one because seeing a video of that match and seeing that win on video with that huge crowd, it's about like winning three matches for Stallings on television live. So it made a, it made a difference by uh, recording it and showing it back as a video, which we would probably show the following week. Second match of the night, Don Wright, who was Ron Wright's brother, and uh, he's working with a pretty darn good Japanese guy, Matt Mitsu Arakawa, and Ron Wright got that win. 
Uh, Butch Malone got his best shot yet at home rodeo. This special event had a stipulation on it as well that any outside interference would not be tolerated. Anybody that interfered in the match was going to be suspended for two weeks. That means you got no pay, you got no shots, you know, so guys weren't going to come down and interfere on this one. Uh, Malone finally got the win, but he, and he didn't get any interference. But old Homer being a, being Homer, he decided he was only going to take so much of a whipping, and he ran. He went to the dressing room, they counted him out, and that's how Malone got his hand raised. Southeastern tag titles were on the line again, but not against the superstars anymore. They were not at the part of the card. They weren't on that card at all, and they were supposedly, fans thought so, gone from Southeastern. The champions, Robert and Jimmy, they're facing a new challenge. The first time ever, they're going to wrestle Homer O'Dell's men, Tor Tanaka and Norvell Austin. Uh, it's for the championship. Homer got involved at the end of it. Malone got his hands on Homer again. He got to come back down and get involved when Homer got involved. Both teams were disqualified. There was no winner declared in the match. Obviously, the title still stayed with Rob and Jimmy. I was defending my Southeastern Championship against Don Carson in a return match after winning the title a week before, obviously. Because of the way Carson had lost, with help from my brother, Rob was banned from ringside for this title match. He could not come down. He wasn't going to be able to do what he did last time. I got to win again, but uh, I was a bloody mess in the process, just as I had been the week before. Don's pretty good at, at whacking you with that glove, and, uh, and I, everybody pretty much bled when he got a piece of that. So the TV show of Saturday, April 24th, that's the one that promotes the matches that we just talked about, uh, the 30th. And we're going to talk later about the big changes coming to Southeastern in the next couple of months. The superstars are going to slowly be replaced by Homer and his men. Homer's going to start bitching more each week about his man Tanaka not getting the opportunity to wrestle for the Southeastern Heavyweight Championship. Uh, and his combination of Tanaka and Austin not getting their shot at the tag titles. Well, they're going to get them, and they got them on this show, but it was their first. So it's going to become a story for the future. Uh, between Homer, who's going to try to do what the superstars and Carson did with the show. He's going to try to take things over, not just the wrestling show, but the territory itself. The opening match on TV, Tor Tanaka and Norvell Austin, obviously managed by Homer. They're against Rick Connors and DeVoy Brunson. And this was a quick match. It's just what we call a smash. I mean, uh, Homer barely had time to get to the set, and he didn't stay at the ring like usually. He wanted to go to the set. And uh, set with Liss and and uh, and push his guys, you know, to brag about him. And uh, Norvell just started the match right away and, and put a flying headbutt right off the bat on Devoy Brunson and tagged Tanaka. And Tanaka just let Brunson crawl slowly back over to the corner and tag out. He didn't even mess with him, never touched him. He just waited for him to tag. And when he tagged Rick Connors, Tanaka grabbed him and just shirked uh, him in the ring and chopped him in the forehead. And uh, he could have had it the victory right there if he wanted to. But then he rolled him over to his partner, Brunson, for a tag. He just left him in the corner. Uh, these two guys were so overmatched. And Austin and, and uh, Tanaka are uh, a pretty decent force, man, in the ring. They were a darn good team together, too. Brunson hadn't even recovered from the headbutt and got it chopped to his forehead as soon as he entered the ring again. And Tanaka drug him over to Norvell and tagged out. 
Norvell slammed him and jumped up on the top rope and did one of those full body splashes on him, and it was over. Homer was at the desk, and he's trying to talk, but he didn't have a chance to talk much before his guys finished the deal. He was bragging on his men, as always, and uh, he asked Les what team in the world could compete with his. You know, and the, he said uh, this combination has been waiting for months to get a shot at the tag champions. That Fuller and Golden had been dodging the real competition in Southeastern, which wasn't the, he called them the blooper stars instead of the superstars. Right. The, the real competition in Southeastern wrestling uh, for tag teams is his team, not the blooper stars. And, uh, and uh, he had, he, then they had been unmasked now and had left Southeast, and his men were going to win the titles the next Friday night. So he then went back to the ring and raised his men's hand, Les threw the, to a commercial, and Homer and his men came back to the set. When the break was over, Homer really took off. He asked why was his two wrestlers, you know, the best in Southeastern, and they had no championships. Now, Les just let him roll. You know, he answered his own question, then Homer, by stating it was because they never had any shots at the championships. You know, Southeastern champions were afraid of him, he said. He was disgusted with his men uh, being overlooked by the Southeastern so that they could keep their belts. And, and he said that was because Southeastern wanted the same people to win because they could control the winners of their belts, you know, and they weren't going to be able to control Tanaka and, and Austin and, and uh, his guys. So Tanaka, he really then started pushing Tanaka. And Tanaka, he asked, why hasn't he ever had a Southeastern title match since he came here? Been here four months and he's been undefeated. Why doesn't he deserve one? Why, why is this happening? You know, unless, you know, said he brought up to him, which was really a good point. He said, uh, hey, because you're two guys here have a Southeastern Tag Championship match this next Friday night. So how do you explain that they don't get a shot at the title? Well, Homer ignored that. He continued screaming. Then he started on his match that he was going to have to have with Butch Malone the next Friday night, in which it was going to be no interference allowed at the ring. And he said it didn't make any difference that he could beat Butch Malone with both his arms broken. And he finished that promise by saying there's going to be some bad things happen in the future here in Southeastern if, if we don't get more chances to win titles and to be a bigger problem, basically, for Southeastern. Second match on the card on this TV was Mike Stallings against Don Lambert. Stallings gave up a lot of weight in that match. Don Lambert's a big guy. He's around 300 pounds. Stallings is about 230. Uh, and they had a great TV match. They had a lot of action in it. Stallings got the victory with the sleeper hold. He had become his finish move. He was really good at it. He went to the set with Les, and he talked about his upcoming match with this veteran, Art Nelson. Uh, Stallings was such a humble kid, and, uh, and he was so complimentary of Art Nelson that he had heard so much about him, and he had studied once he saw he was going to wrestle him, that he had, he had really watched some videos, and he was really uh, he was really uh, just pleased to have the opportunity to wrestle a guy that's as recognized as one of the best wrestlers alive. Uh, and he, he said he was looking forward to it because, like any young guy that's in the sport, you don't know how good you are and whether you're improving till you beat somebody like Art Nelson. So Les wished him well, and then he threw it to the commercial. I came out in the next segment with the Southeastern belt, and I had a pretty badly bruised eye. I had 10 stitches over my right eye from the match the night before with Carson. 
And uh, I'd got a big ovation, obviously, from the studio audience. And Les started me out with congratulations for regaining the Southeastern title. And I wasn't quite as vocal as I usually was because I wasn't really happy with the way I'd won the match. I mean, Rob, Rob had gotten involved, and he basically won the match for me. And I wasn't going to be in a position to say too much about it. You know, I just uh, uh, was glad I had won the championship back and was looking forward to defending it. And uh, Les brought to my the attention of uh, the fans and everybody about the stitches that was over my eye and, and that that black glove that Carson was wearing has provided a lot of stitches for many guys since Carson had arrived. The war was still on between Les and Carson. I mean, they did not want to be around each other. I ended up saying I didn't need my brother's help to beat Carson. I'd done it before, and I was going to do it again the following Friday night. Personality profile was with Don Carson. Uh, it was one of those live ones in which the people in Studio A could see through the opening and actually see them in Studio B and watch it on monitors. And uh, Les didn't want to do the profile. He didn't want to do anything with Carson. He, he wouldn't do any of your interviews, and he didn't want to do the profile. So. The ring announcer, Phil Rainey, stepped in and he did the profile for Les. Carson took almost the whole profile, obviously. He didn't allow Phil to say anything. I really believe maybe only three words in the Phil got to say. Uh, Carson called for the director to roll a video of how I had won the belt. How, how well, I think he put it, how the Fuller brothers had stole his championship the mm -hmm. night before. And the video did not show him hit me with his peanut butter glove, but it picked up the action immediately after he had hit me. The only thing Phil said, I think, in the whole deal was, uh, you know, Don, uh, didn't you hit him with the, and Don cut him off. He said, keep your mouth shut. <laughs> you know, don't bring that up. Just shut up. You know, so Phil wasn't a big guy, and he was obviously pretty scared of Carson. <laughs> so he, he never said anything the rest of the profile. So Don had him at a certain point. He had him stop the video when Rob got in the ring behind him and i was down bleeding and the referee was bent over me and carson loaded his glove you know and uh and you know then and uh he had to make an excuse because it's on video and he says i never load my glove but there he was he loaded his glove and he forgot to have him take that part out so he said oh you know i loaded my glove i mean i didn't load my glove but ron fuller had been trying to take my glove off of me because he knows my arm's really bad and i needed on there and he had shifted my glove, and I had to, to replace it on my hand properly. That's some kind of ridiculous excuse. So uh, he said, uh, and then he goes, and then he pointed to Rob, you know, on the video. He said, uh, look at what Robert Fuller has in his hand, brass knuckles. And he's not even in this match. And uh, he didn't have brass knuckles, but he did spin Carson around, and he hit him with something because Robert picked up something. I didn't even ask him what he hit him with. Referee never saw the punch or Robert. So it was still over on top of me, checking me to, to see the cut on my face and how bad I was. And I crawled over. Carson's laying there and I pinned him. Referee raised my hand and gave me the belt. Carson screamed to stop it right there. Stop the video. He goes, uh, I'm standing up in the ring over with the belt in the air. And Carson asked Rainey and all the fans in the studio, which was a big mistake. He goes, uh, is that the way you want your champion to win matches? <laughs> and, oh, that was a boy. He opened the door for him. They all scream. Yeah. <laughs> Boo. They booed him like crazy. So he promised that my brother 
wasn't going to be able to help me because he's banned from being at ringside this next week, and he's going to take his belt back, and he's never going to give me another chance to win it when he does. He said that I wasn't the kind of champion people in the southeastern area wanted or needed, and he was going to change all that Friday night. He left the studio, and Phil closed the profile. Third match, Butch Malone against Tony Peters. Butch got a quick win, went to the set for an interview after the commercial break, and he made it clear how happy he was finally to get a match one-on-one with Homer, and this time, absolutely no interference. And he was going to take his time and punish Homer to get even once and for all for what Homer had done to him. Last match, Southeastern champions, Robert and Jimmy, taking on Bill Dundee and Phil Hickerson. A good tag team combination there. Very good tag match, won by the champions, obviously. They went to the set, and uh, they were joined there by Ron Wright, and they watched the video of the night before where they had wrestled the superstars in the mask versus belt challenge. Then they, it showed everything basically. It even showed uh, Ron Wright coming to the ring. It showed him unmasking the superstars. It even caught the part where they announced their names. So let's do it to a commercial and Robin Jim stayed for the interview and they voiced their opinion. The same as Wright had said on the end before he left about, he was so glad to see these two guys gone that uh, they had been thorns in his side for months and months, but they weren't on the card at all for the following week. And uh, everybody suspected they'll never be on Southeastern card again. They focused then on Homer's men and their first title defense, Rob and Jimmy against Tanaka and Austin. And that was the end of the program. Wow. Wow. It's a good place to take a break. That's That's another great one. And we're only halfway there. The storytelling continues in a moment. Super Studcast number 28 with Jacques Rougeau about his family's 75-year history has been a patron favorite. Part 2 is now available and maybe even better than the fantastic Part 1 at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. This one surpasses the normal three-hour Super Studcast as Jacques takes us on another journey, but this one is very personal for him. It involves a very traumatic experience with the British Bulldog that will shock fans as Jacques tells a bone-chilling story about an encounter that few fans ever hear of. It changes his life and leads to public service that has made him a different man. This Super Studcast is a real classic and will be talked about for years at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast, only $2.99. The resemblances between Jacques and his brothers to Ron and his brother Robert are remarkable. Don't miss this one. Ron rarely announces the subjects of Super Studcast in advance, but has decided to Finally, honor the request of patrons all over the world. Super Studcast number 29, releasing on May 12th, 2020, will be about one of the most important yet silent figures in professional wrestling history. Few have ever talked about this one. He will also have some special wrestler guests that will tell their stories about the one and only Jim Barnett. Hey, we're back. It's another Studcast, and the Tennessee Stud is on the roll once again. All right, Stud, where were we? Well, you know, we finished up with uh, basically April 23rd and April 30th of 1976. And uh, I want to talk now about booking. Uh, you know, that's an interesting subject for a lot of wrestling fans. Uh, bookers are, have to be creative people. And you know, Southeastern had become, by this point, a, a very desirable territory to be in. And basically, that all started about the beginning of this year, 1976. And uh, wrestlers were averaging 
about $800 a week, which was that comparable to 3000 or so in today's money. Yeah. And I'd been uh, getting a steady stream of calls from great talent all over the world. Uh, it was amazing that wanted to come into Southeastern. So it was a long way from, I was, <laughs> I had really done a pretty decent job because I, a year before in 1975, I was begging guys to come in, and now they're just uh, calling, and I, I've got a list of guys that want to come in. I had a great crew at this point. How did this compare to other markets, other territories? Were guys making that kind of money, or was this kind of an exception at the time? This was an exception at the time. There weren't a lot of people uh, that were doing real big business in 75. Well, and uh, yeah. the great part of this is it wasn't just $800, but it was short trips. Uh, guys in Florida, for instance, were making less than we were making in Southeastern and they were driving 2000 miles and my guys were driving 400. Right. You know, I mean, it was, uh, it was a tremendous place to be and guys from all over the world had heard about it and they wanted to come. They, I was going to say, it sounds like word gets around pretty quickly when you have a territory that's lighting up like this. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, wrestlers talk, you know, I'm, uh, the old saying was a uh, telephone telegraph or tell a wrestler, you know right. I mean? And if you told a wrestler, you know, this type of stuff, they all say that we were hot. Southeastern yeah. was hot. My phone rang all the time with guys. I never thought I'd ever get that said, I want to come. When can I start? So yeah. I had this great crew in, in 76 and the, you know, with the superstars and with Carson and, and uh, they had all gotten over. I mean, uh, matches were always great every night. But I realized I had a problem. That's such a small territory. I could not keep guys as long as the big territories like Mid-Atlantic over there in Charlotte or Florida, like I just mentioned before. Fans in smaller territories, they got tired of seeing the same wrestlers week after week. Even if your angles and your programs were strong, they still wanted to see somebody else. And that was pretty much the same across the country. With all territories, it was April and summer was coming and summer was the best time of the year. So, uh, I'd put wrestlers wanting to get in Southeastern off for months, you know, and, uh, and at this point I was at a point where I was risking losing them entirely. I mean, they're not going, they'll stay in a territory they're not happy with. If they think three months down the road, I'm going to get to go to the one I want to be in. And so I had not committed to guys yet. And uh, I was afraid I was going to lose them. They were going to go to other territories and just give up on me, basically. So for me, it was time to reload, focus on the summer and pull the trigger, man. Or, or you know, I was going to lose a lot of great talent. Uh, so as I said at the beginning of today's studcast, uh, we're going to give the would-be bookers, let's call them, an opportunity to get inside my head at the end of April 1976 uh, and book the next three months, basically, that's what I'm looking at here. And who am I going to bring in and what am I going to do with them? So there'll be a tremendous turnover of talent in, in the winter and beginning in the summer of 76. Between April 30th, 76 and July 23rd of 76, the superstars are gone. Big Butch Malone is gone. My brother, Robert Fuller, is going to be gone. The superstars had arrived in December 75. They had a long productive run. They popped the territory with the Ron Wright Hardway angle. They'd been Southeastern tag champions. 
They change their mask and outfits and their names three times before they disappear from Southeastern forever. You know, so they're going to come back even after they've lost their mask. They'll come back as another mask team and they'll even change and be a third one before they disappear entirely. Big Butch Malone, he arrived in November of 75. He soon joined Homer O'Dell's army and he became partners with Norvell. Uh, and they became the tag champions. Uh, he was turned on by Homer and Norvell and then Tanaka too, basically. And uh, he'd been a strong baby face for me. Uh, he's going to leave and he's never going to return to Southeastern. Robert arrived in Southeastern July of 75. I was still a heel. In fact, he helped turn me into a baby face. He won the first ever Southeastern tag belts with Jimmy. He'd won the Southeastern single titles. He had a tremendous run with the superstar. Uh, he would return on to Southeastern on several occasions in the future. Rob's going to always be welcome back, and he's going to do some booking, too. Uh, he's, he's going to start, like me, learning that part of the business. So on June 4th, 76, Dick Steinborn and me, we're going to get injured. Uh, just to kind of give people an idea of what my thinking. So on June 4th, Dick Steinborn and me, uh, we're both going to be injured and out for various lengths of time. Carson is going to turn babyface. In June of 76, actually in May, and he's going to fake an injury and be out for a month. And then he's going to come back as a heel and have even more heat than he has at this point. So I've got ideas for Carson. I'm going to keep Don. I'm going to keep Steinborn. I'm going to be injured and out for six weeks after the June 4th card and then uh, return stronger than ever. I'm going to come back. Worked with an NWA world champion, Terry Funk, in October, October 10th of 1976. Uh, one of the first record crowds for the Coliseum. Dick Steinborn, he's he going to get injured on June the 4th. He's going to be out for two months, and he'll return as a baby face under a mask, and he'll be called the Gladiator. So I have these plans that I'm developing. So during this three months, Bob Armstrong, Louis Tillet, Kurt and Carl Von Steiger, and the great Mephisto, a guy named Frankie Kane, who is well-respected and a tremendous worker, all are going to be added to the crew. All five of them, top talents in 1976. And two of those five had been successful bookers for other territories. They were in demand, these guys. And making this many movements, timing was everything. When you did this, you really had to put it all together, especially if you had a small territory. I couldn't afford to bring in many new guys before the ones I had were leaving because I couldn't afford to pay the guys. And if I had a whole bunch of guys in the territory, I had to have a lot of matches on the card to be able to keep them all working. And if I did that, that would set a horrible precedent for the future. I didn't want to have more than seven matches. I thought that was enough matches. And it also meant that it required me to carry more guys than I wanted to. And then if I do that, I can't pay them as much as them. Instead of that 800 they're making, they'd drop to 600. So I, I'm in a position here where I really got to, uh, I've got to time this perfectly. So you also had to have fans uh, expecting uh, more matches on every card. If you start giving them seven matches and eight matches, they're going to expect it. And I only needed 14 to 16 wrestlers. I didn't need a big crew like Mid-Atlantic. I was only running one city a night 
I wasn't like Mid-Atlantic Territory where they were running sometimes two and three cities a night. They had probably 50 wrestlers. I didn't need that. I wanted to keep mine to 14 or 16. I didn't want to have more than seven matches on my card because I believed that seven great matches was enough for any crowd, especially if every one of those matches tore the house down. Yeah. So there was an old saying for bookers, you know, always leave them wanting more. <laughs> and, uh, so, you know, you don't want to give them everything they possibly could want because they're not inclined to come back. So, you know, you, you give them just enough to tease them to where they want to come back. So, and that's pretty hard to do if you're going to have more than seven matches. So without realizing, I'm beginning to form my own style as a booker. I start to focus on quality wrestlers from top to the bottom, everybody in my crew. And this starts with me basically in the summer of 1976. As time goes on, I'm going to make much bigger territory. I'll have a bigger territory. When I get down there to Pensacola, I'm going to have a lot of big cities and a lot of towns that I can run. And, uh, this style is even going to fit very well down there, too. As a booker, I wanted every match to be great, every wrestler involved in something. Everybody paid almost the same, no matter where they were on the card. Everybody accustomed to moving from first match one week to the main event the next and back to the first match maybe in the next week without their pay changing dramatically. These things never happened in anybody's territory. You had the guys on top and you had the guys at the bottom. The guys at the bottom never made top money. The guys at the top never got bottom money. But if you got great crew from top to bottom, why don't you pay them all practically the same? And they don't care if their first match or last match because they know they're going to make the same amount of money. It turned out to be a tremendous formula for a booker. And it worked great for me from then on, the summer 1976 on. So with all this in mind, you know, juggling wrestlers coming and going, trying to keep the momentum that you had created in the early part of 76, how did I handle this as a booker? You know, how, how was I going to do this? So here are a few of the key things that happened from late April 1976 into July that kept everything going and kept people in a position to continue to draw me money until they had to leave. On April 23rd of 76, uh, we just talked about that. The superstars lost their mask, and uh, they didn't even come back the next week. On May the 7th, the following week, on the 30th, uh, we've already talked about that card. On May the 7th, the superstars, two weeks after they got their mask taken off, they come back with new masks and outfits, and they call themselves the Avengers. Well, they're not fooling any of the fans. The fans know, hey, that's the same guys, man. <laughs> what are they doing back here? So they got a lot of heat by just showing up and trying to fool, like they're going to fool somebody. Right. May the 14th, I took Rob's place in a Southeastern title match with Carson. A Homer and his men attacked Carson. In that match, Homer and his men attacked another heel, Don Carson, and I win the championship. And then Carson becomes a babyface. Now, this is crazy. People will go, what is he doing? What are they doing? What's going on? But people loved it. They got into it. Now, Carson has got to take that black glove, and he's going to start working on Homer and Tanaka and, and Austin. That works for a few weeks. And then on the 21st, the following week, Carson wrestles Homer heads up. So here's Carson with a loaded glove. Fans are cheering the heel that they hated because he's going to beat the hell out of Homer. 
And, uh, you know, I begin uh, on that same week, I begin a three-week program with me and Dick Steinborn. It's built around uh, the Southeastern Championship. That's two baby faces against each other. That's unheard of again. That's totally different than bookers do. On May 28th, Carson teamed up with Ron Wright in a tag match to take on Homer's two guys, Tanaka and Norvell. Uh, Robert and Jimmy defend on that same night titles against a new team called the Avengers, who is the same team that they unmasked just weeks before. So June the 4th, uh, Jimmy and Robert, they defend the Southeastern tag titles against a new mask team, another one. They beat the Avengers, take their mask off, and these guys come back again as the Super Avengers this time. <laughs> you know, it's like they can't get rid of Dunn and, and Baxter. You know, and then on June the 4th, that same card, Carson returns as a partner with Ron Wright against Homer and his men. But he fakes an injury in the middle of the match. He leaves Ron Wright alone in there with all three of them and uh, says he tore his knee out and he disappears for a month. He doesn't even come back. Yeah, nobody even knows what happened to Carson. That same night, Steinborn and I were wrestling a third week in a row for the Southeastern, my belt, the Southeastern belt against his mid-American belt in a babyface match. And at the end of the match, Homer and Tanaka and Norvell attacked the both of us and injured us both. I'm out for six weeks, and Steinborn's out for two months. Robert takes my Southeastern title because I have to give it up. I'm not able to defend it. Uh, Tanaka tears my shoulder out. June 11th, Carl Von Steiger is a brand-new heel, and Louis Tillette is a babyface arrived in Southeastern. Robert defends the Southeastern title on that night against Super Avenger number 2 which is Dick Dunn, and uh, he's going to be gone. The 18th, Bob Armstrong arrives, first night in Southeastern. Robert takes Super Avenger 2, uh, beats him in a loser-leave-town match, and the superstars and the Avengers and the Super Avengers, they are done. That's it. That's the final June 18th, 1976. There's the end of Dick Dunn and Leon Baxter, and they will never return to Southeastern again. Wow. June 25th, new Southeastern champion, Tora Tanaka, defends the title against Bob Armstrong. Now we've got totally different people at the top. A new babyface, Louis Tillet, turns on his partner, Ron Wright, and the very first time they ever worked together in a tag match. So Louis Tillet is a pretty decent booker. And he comes in as a baby face and right away turns on Ron Wright to become a heel. July 2nd, I got what's happening here is fans are, are going, wow, what's going to happen next? You know, and that just, just, it's pretty decent booking. July 2nd, Carson returns from an injury. He manages Louis Tillet against Ron Wright. So he's been to partner with Ron Wright. Now he's managing the guy that's wrestling against Ron Wright. He's back to being a heel. And Butch Malone on that same night wrestles his last match ever for Southeastern. He's gone. He disappears. The following week, Kurt Von Steiger, another great, arrives. And he becomes partners with his brother, Carl Von Steiger, that's been there for three weeks. And they're going to wrestle against Rob and Jimmy with a championship. The 16th of July, the great Mephisto, Frankie Kane, arrives in Southeastern first time. I return to Southeastern as a Second for Bob Armstrong that same night in a 10-round boxing match against Tor Tanaka. Imagine Bob Armstrong and Tor Tanaka boxing. 
I mean, you know, Bob Armstrong got all those martial arts skills. I mean, uh, we're driving fans crazy. The 23rd, I wrestled Tanaka for the Southeastern Championship. Dick Steinborn comes back, but he doesn't come back as Dick Steinborn. He comes back as a babyface mask man called the Gladiator, and people know who it is. So, you know, all these changes have been made in the summer, and uh, this crew's going to take Southeastern through the rest of the summer and on into the fall. Uh, and Southeastern's going to break records for that whole time frame. Well, that's just absolutely incredible, Ron. I guess it's time for us to get that cold ring. Have a seat under the learning tree. So who sent in the question for today's show? Well, today's question comes from a guy named Dennis Brown. And, and he asked, uh, as I mentioned earlier in the program, what effect would this COVID-19 virus have had on the territories and wrestlers if it had happened in the 1970s and 80s? Mm. Would any of them have been able to come back and survive? Obviously, the, this question, you know, it's very apropos for today, that's for sure. Uh, it's hard for me to even imagine something like COVID-19 happening in the 70s and 80s. And, but it would have had a dramatic effect on wrestling, just as it has, has done already. So let's take a look at how it would have affected the owners and the territories. Business in the 70s, 80s was totally different from many things that done today. Let's start with the television wrestling that was critical back in the territory days. Even more so, it's critical today. Because wrestling, today wrestling, is a television-driven machine. Uh, that's where promoters make their money. Uh, it's not only for the exposure that it provides like it used to do for territories, but it's the big producer of huge revenue. So, you know, that was totally different back in our day uh, in the 70s and 80s. You didn't make money by having a television program. You utilize that television program for house shows and live events that's going to make you money. That's where the big money came from back in the 70s and 80s. So imagine what happens if you're in the 70s and 80s and you're running a company. You've got no house shows and you're not getting paid by your television. So you've got no income. And you can't have house shows because of the social distancing. Right. You can't have a big crowd. You know, they shut you down for a month or two months or whatever. So let's look even deeper into the difference between today's TV and the territory days. Back in the 70s and 80s, you either bought an hour or you bartered the program. You know, by barter, I mean you essentially traded time in your wrestling show each week back to the stations and they could sell it for advertising. That produced income for them. It made sense to put the TV show on because they could sell some commercial time in it. Uh, most uh, every territory had its own way of dealing with TV stations. You know, they didn't all do it the same way. Uh, I'll use Southeastern Knoxville as an example of what I experienced and how I developed uh, my television in the mid-70s. WBIR TV in Knoxville was my flagship station. That's where I produced my television program. The television show that went in the other cities in my territory came out of that studio. I was not paid for TV by that station or any of the other stations that I had my shows on. My business model uh, was based upon providing stations with a wrestling program that had the standard at that time of 16 minutes of total commercial time and a one-hour show. So stations nor networks didn't pay for the show as is done in today's wrestling. I would split that 16 minutes of commercial time with them. 
They got eight minutes. They got 30-second commercials. That's 16 commercials they could sell from that 60-minute show. I got eight minutes to plug my live events. That's all I needed to do. I had these house shows. Uh, that's where I was going to make money. That's how I was going to pay my wrestlers and my expenses. So those live events was my only income. So with my flagship station, WBIR, I had an additional deal. They would pay all the cost of producing the show every Saturday, the studio time, the cameramen, the production guys, everything associated with the production side of the show was going to be their responsibility to pay for. And I was responsible for my commentators and my ring announcers and my wrestlers and my referees and all of the wrestling side of the expenses. So all these costs of associated with the wrestling side of the show in the 70s and 80s, I'm not aware of any territory in America or in the world that was being paid to provide a television wrestling show. So, you know, what happens now, let's take a look at what happened is the standard in the television part of the industry today. You know, uh, let's use WWE as an example for this. I mean, they have a contract to provide a weekly television show to a network, and they receive millions for that contract. I've heard maybe billions. You know, it's a, an astronomical figure. So, you know, they don't need the live event because they've got this income coming in from the TV show. They can continue to produce the TV show even without an audience. And I think that's probably what they'll end up doing if they're not doing it already. Right. They're responsible for the entire production cost of the show. WWD is. Uh, they don't split it with the TV uh, network. And uh, they're responsible for the wrestlers and the stagehands and the production trucks. And it's all their problem to deal with uh, creating that program, but then they get paid mega bucks for doing so. Right. So back in the territory today's, we received no income from TV. Today's wrestling, there's an income from providing TV network for the wrestling program. And it's becoming more and more that way. So what's the effect of COVID-19 pandemic on today's wrestling companies compared to what might have been in the territory days? Well, the virus requires separation, obviously, and it doesn't allow you to have live events. You can't have large crowds. So the latest WrestleMania event, they lost a, a sellout in right. Tampa Stadium. You know, imagine the loss that was to them, uh, you know, a huge loss. But they still have this big income from television, no matter what their losses are. So. It would have been exactly the same effect uh, on the territories. I mean, uh, except we didn't have that income from TV. Right. So the difference between WWE and the territories is uh, their income they're getting from TV. And we did not get that income. And uh, we're going to have a real hard time. Territories are going to have an extremely hard time in this situation, uh, much so, more so than today's wrestling especially the big companies. Now, the independents, those are small operations, and they're dead. They don't draw many people anyway, and now they're not allowed to have their matches at all. So it would be terrible. It would be, for the territories, it would be absolutely devastating. They'd be devoid of any income, no live events, and on the brink of the extinction in a short period of time. The territory owners, They'd have to continue to produce TV shows if they wanted to stay in business at all. And uh, most of that at their own expense, and they have no live event income. So they would still be spending money without having any income at all. 
the owners with the deepest pockets, they're going to survive. And uh, that would be depending, all of this would depend on how long is this going to last. Yeah, maybe one month, probably they're going to make it. Two months, it's going to be iffy. Three months, I'm not sure that there would be any, any more wrestling on TV, and there would be very few companies that get rolling. So as bad as that picture would be in the 1970s and 80s for owners, It'd be much worse for the wrestlers. Let's talk a little bit about the wrestling side of this and what the poor wrestlers would have to look at. Uh, let's take a look at what happened in the territory days compared to today with the same type of virus. Uh, you know, since closing the territories, wrestlers' financial situation, they've greatly changed depending on whether they work for a big-time company or an independent company. If you're working for WWE, you got a big contract and you're going to be doing fine. And when Vince took over, he did something that's very rare in territory days. He put wrestlers on contracts and guaranteed them some income. In the territory days, if this thing had happened in the territory days, very few wrestlers would have been on contract. Uh, they would have had no way to make money. There would have been no place they could have gone to work. And if they weren't on a contract, you know, they would have really been in trouble. Now, Vince even canceled a lot of his contracts due to this. He didn't want to keep all the people that he had on contract because he didn't need them. He's not going to have any live shows. And he realizes that, and he's not going to be, you won't find wrestling going to anywhere until they open it up for people to gather again in large crowds. So uh, wrestlers, unlike promoters, they had very little money put away for the future. You know, the promoters usually had a little more money in their pocket and they could have gone further with this but wrestlers couldn't have gone very far at all with it. Uh, it wouldn't be long till they'd be looking for another line of work. So answering to the last question he had was, would any of them been able to come back and survive? I think the answer would be the same for both owners and wrestlers. It would depend on, like I said, how long this outbreak would last, how long before you could have a live events, uh, how long before you allowed crowds to gather for them, uh, the shorter the time frame, the more likely both owners and wrestlers would survive. Uh, even if the pandemic was to last for a long period of time with no live events, uh, when the ban on the crowds was finally lifted, wrestling would have somehow returned. I don't care how long it went. And if they quit being on TV, it would sprout like grass. Yeah. You know, it would grow back. It's a sport that'll never die. It has always survived. Wrestling has made it through everything. So, you know, whether it be in carnivals or territories or WWE professional wrestling, the sport as resilient as America itself. Yeah. It's a part of the fabric of the world as necessary as any sports that are out there. You can't kill it. It might get sick and uh, shrink up a little bit, but uh, eventually it's going to come back. Well, there you go. Another another amazing, honest answer on the learning tree. And you can find Ron on Facebook. Look for the Facebook page that features Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud, and automatically become friends with a legend. On Twitter, you can find him at Ron Fuller Welch. Super Studcast number 28 with Jacques Rougeau has been a pleasure for patrons. And now part two is available making it more than three hours total at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast for only $2.99. Ron, 
would you like to say anything else about this one? And and where are we going next week? Well, uh, yeah, I want to say something about that Stupid Stud cast with Jacques Rougeau uh, and the Rougeau family. Part two has just been released, and uh, you were actually a part of that too, Dave. And I thought that was a tremendous program. There are some things in that part two that I, I think true wrestling fans would be amazed at how candid Jock was about an event with the British Bulldog that changed his life and uh, made a better man out of him. Yep. And, uh, you know, I mean, when I was doing this one with Jock Rougeau and his brothers, it reminded me of me and my brother and how similar we are in different ways. And it's a pretty darn good uh, super stud cast. Uh, they're fans of Jacques Rougeau. And even if you're not, he has a tremendous story. He and his family of 75-year run in uh, Canada is one of the most popular wrestling families in the history there. The story was just, in part two, might, might be better than part one, but the story on part two was just absolutely riveting. Once he got started, and it took a little while to tell the story, but once he got started, uh, you man, you were just hanging on to every word because it's I've never heard anything like that about professional wrestling. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty remarkable. But uh, next week, uh, we're going to be entering the month of May 1976. A lot of things are happening in May. I kind of went over some of them today a little bit, but we're going to look at the week of May 7th with a potentially bad riot in Kentucky. We're wrestling in Kentucky, and uh, this one involves Tor Tanaka and Homer Odell. And a fan that uh, is very lucky that he wasn't seriously injured. I'm going to tell about that particular uh, little riot next week. And our learning tree question next week is another good one. Uh, this gentleman makes a good observation of, and, and has some good questions. And he, here's kind of what he says. He says, uh, it seems to me the lack of competition, territory boundaries, defined TV markets, and non-contracted interchangeable talent was primary contributors to the death of the territories. Mm. Uh, this is, you know, uh, that's a pretty good statement right there. Uh, when Vince Jr. began to run cards in promoters' backyards, buy their TV time and things like that, promoters seemed to be caught flat-footed. Had there been more competition, would it have been better for territories? Did the system make promoters too complacent until the wolf was at the door? That's a good one. Can't wait to talk about that one. And I want to thank all my listeners, obviously. And I hope everybody stays healthy out there. And may God bless us all. All right. Another amazing job, Ron. Ron Fuller Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. I'm your host, David Summers, thanking you for joining us for another Studcast. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.